1: When we talk about the possibility of life beyond this planet, and it seems like a good time to do that, we tend to focus on a couple of things. First, always on Mars, either to wonder whether it once had life and might again, or to wonder if we can leave Earth and go there, preferably soon. Second, though, is to wonder about the vast reaches of the solar system and the universe, to think about whether or not there is life out there, aside from us. If we can just find some sign that there are other organisms out there on another planet just waiting to be found. And maybe we can find them. And maybe we are not alone. That's the romantic version. What we don't tend to think much about is our other planetary neighbor. So it's kind of perfect that life might be just sitting there in a form we can't imagine, right next door. And sometime in the next few years, that soon, if we're lucky, we could pop over for a look. If we can figure out how to do that and not melt. I'm Jordan heath Rawlings. This is The Big Story. Neil Patel is the space reporter, the MIT Technology Review. Hello, Neil.
0: Hey, how are you doing?
1: I'm doing pretty well. Happy to be talking about something off this planet at the moment.
0: (laughs) For sure. (laughs) A nice uh, reprieve from current events.
1: Yeah, and this is uh, a fascinating topic. And maybe you can start by, uh, for those of us who don't have uh, much of a background in this stuff and who have spent all our science fiction-based time thinking about Mars. Can you tell us a bit about Venus? You know, what's it like there? Um, Everything.
0: Sure. Yeah. So Venus is long thought to have been a very inhospitable world. It's almost like another hell. It's got very, very high temperatures that are thought to be over 450 degrees Celsius on the surface of the planet. Its surface pressures are thought to be 90 times uh, stronger than what you might find on Earth. It's thought to have some very, very acidic clouds. um, And those clouds are actually why it shines so brightly in the night sky when it's, um, you know, uh, seen during the nighttime.
1: Is that why we tend to uh, focus our attention on Mars so much
0: more than Venus? I think we tend to focus our attention on Mars because, yeah, Mars is you know, thought to be a place that we could actually go visit ourselves. Venus is interesting for so many reasons, but we're never, ever going to see a time in our future when you see human colonists or human explorers uh, venturing down below those clouds towards the surface. Mars is, you know, at least a place that you can see future generations, you know, visiting one day.
1: So what's changing then uh, if we're never going to visit there, at least not in any uh, foreseeable timeline? What's changing about uh, how we see Venus right now?
0: So it turns out Venus may not be as inhospitable as we once thought. Uh, a lot of things changed last week when uh, there was the announcement that we had found phosphine in the uh, clouds of the planet. Uh, phosphine gas is not something that is thought to be able to be produced naturally in most kinds of conditions. If it's produced um, by any kind of uh, human activity, it's because of sort of high industry things that we run here. But otherwise, phosphine is a is a you know tiny little gas that is only thought to be produced by microbes that are in very poor oxygenated environments. Um, finding phosphine in the clouds of Venus might be a sign that there's some life forms that. found a way to make themselves at home uh, within the atmosphere.
1: And we'll talk about that and what it means in just a second. But can you explain how we find phosphine?
0: Sure. Yeah. So the study that came out last week, what essentially happened was you had different groups of scientists that were kind of thinking about Venus in certain ways. And it happened to just be the fact that um, a few scientists we're specializing in studying phosphine, which is, like I said, a sort of rare gas on Earth. So there was never any sort of inclination among astronomers to look for it outside of Earth. But, you know, after some discussions here and there between that team, a few astronomers thought, hey, why don't we point our ground-based telescopes over to Venus and see if, you know, we can maybe detect it in certain traces here and there. And so they reserved time on... um, two very high-tech telescopes on Earth. One is uh, the James Clerk Maxwell Telescope based in Hawaii, and the other is the Atacama Large Millimeter Submillimeter Array in Chile. Both telescopes were able to sort of find these traces of phosphine gas in the atmosphere. Uh, It's not something that we would have found otherwise uh, unless we were just specifically targeting the Venusian clouds for phosphine gas. Um, and it just so happened that these researchers were able to reserve time on those observatories for studying Venus in this capacity.
1: So did we just kind of stumble on it then? Did we, did we find this out? Because a, a couple of researchers were really curious, like there was no uh, hardcore effort here to make this discovery.
0: Yeah, it, these findings came as such a surprise to so much of the scientific world because when it comes to looking for life on other planets, it's thought that we should be looking for quote unquote biosignatures that are you know probably much more relevant to what we might find on Earth. Phosphine is not a gas that um, is very representative of 99% of life here on Earth. Um, So to go out of your way to target for phosphine on another planet is just, you know, a confluence of different factors that are super rare and we just happen to stumble on gold at this point. What
1: was the reaction uh, when that hit the scientific community?
0: It was amazing. It was kind of a surprise, but also if you talk to so many astronomers in uh, the space community... Uh, so many of them have been bullish on wanting to investigate Venus um, because of these sort of little tidbits of data that suggest there's something maybe there, that there are biosignatures worth probing for. Uh, this was a very, very encouraging finding, and it was not quite as the shock as I think it was for the rest of the public, but it you know certainly made waves, and it only fueled more excitement around the fact that We should go explore Venus more in depth.
1: Well, how often or how thoroughly have uh, we studied and explored
0: Venus in the past? Like, uh, how much work has been done? Not very much. Uh, The biggest program for Venus exploration has been the former Soviet Union's Venera program, which ceased to to launch new missions uh, in the mid-80s. Probably the biggest profile mission on that was Venera 13, which managed to it managed to land on the surface of Venus and I think exist for about 127 minutes before succumbing to the temperatures and pressures there. Venus, because it's so inhospitable to study, there just hasn't been much interest in building these, uh, you know, multi-million dollar, even perhaps even a billion dollar, you know, mission to then have it just succumb Uh, in a matter of hours to the the Venusian atmosphere. So there hasn't really been that much um, willpower among public space agencies to devote that much money towards studying Venus. That's been one of the major issues here.
1: This might be a dumb question, but if that was in the mid 80s, um, surely we've come quite far since then in terms of the technology. Do we have stuff now we think could last for longer in that climate?
0: Yeah, definitely. Um, When it comes to actually, you know, possibly studying the surface, um, there have been a lot of engineers that have been working on new technologies, new kinds of uh, metals or circuitry that could last uh, much longer than just a couple hours on the surface of Venus. None of those things, unfortunately, have been put into very much action. Um, These are, you know, just sort of little uh, proof of concept studies here and there or proposals that suggest you might be able to build materials out of this way. But there hasn't been, again, there hasn't been a sort of willpower to just um, actually build the uh, probe or lander itself and send it out to Venus. But that is one of sort of the exciting things about this new study is that it raises more hopes in the possibility that we could build those sorts of things now and that we have an actual sort of target for studying Venus in closer depth.
1: Your piece in MIT Technology Review is titled, We Need to Go to Venus as Soon as Possible. And that's not just you. There's there's some experts uh, quoted in that piece as well. When When you use that phrase, we need to go to Venus, what does that actually entail?
0: The story that I wrote was advocating for a very broad exploration program, one that we could compare to what we do for Mars. On Mars, uh, we've already launched several different orbiters uh, we've launched rovers landers uh, we've launched different kinds of missions that are digging into into the underground surface. There is such a massively comprehensive program for studying Mars. And that's sort of what I'm advocating for when it comes to Venus. We don't want to just launch a single new orbiter or a single new probe that'll go through the atmosphere or a single new lander or just devote a little bit more time on ground observatories on Earth to study Venus. We want to do all of the above. All of those things are essential because there is too much to study on Venus that only one mission can, uh, can investigate. It's worth having very many different programs all at once in order to share different data, and then those missions can use the insights of other missions to more closely investigate peculiar things, perhaps you know signs of life or signs of new biosignatures that are worth investigating more in depth. Uh,
1: you mentioned another orbiter. Are there orbiters there right now, and and what are they telling us?
0: So the last major orbital mission around Venus was Venus Express, which was run by the European Space Administration to study the planet's atmosphere and surface characteristics. It was launched in 2006, and it was retired in 2014. So since then, we have not had a sort of very rigorous uh, program in studying Venus, even from just the clouds. Right now, there is one orbiter of note that is um, circling the planet right now. It's the Japanese space agency's Akatsuki spacecraft. And it has sort of a weird history on its own. It was launched in 2010 uh, and it was supposed to make uh, the Venusian orbit by December 2010. But unfortunately, some glitches occurred and it was not able to sort of um, make it into the planet's orbit properly. It had to end up circling around the sun and coming back again around 2015. And it's been studying Venus since 2015. But unfortunately, that orbiter is really not equipped to studying the planet's uh, atmosphere or surface in depth for any kinds of biosignatures or life-bearing characteristics. It's really just around there to study the planet's weather and a bit of its climate and tell us uh, a bit more of some of the geophysical characteristics.
1: You mentioned back at the beginning uh, of our talk that it, it was very unlikely, I guess. And if I'm if I'm putting it wrong, correct me. That uh, phosphine would be created by anything except biological forms. When we say kind of it's unlikely or probably not, um, how do we make certain? And, and what are the chances that uh, you know we just don't understand uh, the chemistry going on on Venus, and it's just this random thing that happened?
0: That's a very good question, and that's a question that is being hotly debated right now in the scientific community, actually. Um, So when I mention that it's unlikely that for phosphine to have been created by um, anything other than life, I mean that very strictly in terms of Earth, in the terrestrial environment. There's a lot of different kinds of exotic chemistries that are possible off-world. And Venus, being one of the most extreme environments in the solar system, it's extremely possible that uh, there may be some kind of natural geophysical processes or natural chemistry happening in the atmosphere that is creating phosphine. Now, there have been some studies, um, especially by the authors of the new phosphine study that have that have followed up and gone through more in depth into why they were able to sort of eliminate the known possibilities for how phosphine might have been created on Venus naturally. The study is, it's very good um, and definitely worth anyone to check out in case they're curious to sort of learn more about like why scientists um, were able to sort of eliminate any of those natural processes. But one of the experts I talked to, Paul Byrne at North Carolina State, raises the simple fact that we just don't know enough about Venus to say that, you know, there isn't some kind of weird chemistry or weird processes going on on the surface or in the clouds that are creating phosphine. So It's entirely possible that uh, phosphine is just being created by some kind of natural processes. And what we really need to do, which is why we need to launch a very comprehensive Venus exploration program, is study the planet more in depth in order to actually eliminate uh, the possibility of those things.
1: Would we just scoop up some of the gas and analyze it? Is that what we're really like? Is that the heart of this?
0: (laughs) Yeah, I would say so. I think. Uh, it, there hasn't very much been a kind of interest in a uh, what you would call a sample return mission when it comes to Venus, um, but I, I think the new findings at this point would really bolster support for a mission that works like that. Uh, you can imagine an orbiter, um, you know, letting go or ejecting some kind of small probe that Um, Does, you know, just sort of dip into the atmosphere, captures a little bit of the sample of the gas and then returns to the orbiter or, you know, makes its way directly back to Earth to, you know, bring to us to study in the lab. I think a sample return mission of Venus would be one of the most exciting uh, space exploration missions uh, we could conceive of in the next couple decades.
1: You say the next couple of decades. How long would it take? Like if we if we had the will behind it and the money behind it, and I know there's all sorts of uh, political fights uh, around that potentially. But let's say we reached a consensus that we had to figure out if this was life or not, uh, and we'll start tomorrow. How soon would we find out?
0: So that's another big question on the minds of a lot of scientists and engineers. Launch windows to Venus, meaning when. Our planet and Venus are at the shortest distance, which makes it much easier for us to launch missions there. Launch windows to Venus only open up about every 19 months. So, you know, it takes, even if you wanted it to just launch tomorrow, you're going to have to wait a bit of time to before you can actually send something out there. Um, the other issue too is these missions are so expensive. If we want to properly develop the kind of uh, spacecraft that will, you know, withstand the... Uh, rigors and pressures of the Venusian atmosphere and that environment, you need to really take time in building out these kinds of spacecraft. And you don't want to just rush onto something like that. And you want to make sure that there's enough funding to go along those things. There are two sort of big missions um, that NASA is currently debating when it comes to exploring Venus. And I think these new findings would bolster the case for greenlighting either or both of those things. There's Veritas, which is a proposed orbital mission. And there's Da Vinci Plus, which is a proposed mission to launch a little probe that would go into the Venusian atmosphere and kind of study it using the most state-of-the-art tools we can build right now. Neither of those missions, if they're selected, would launch any earlier than 2026. Hmm. That doesn't mean that we're not going to Venus anytime soon. There are a couple other proposals that are sort of being debated right now. One in particular is um, actually being built by a private company based in New Zealand called Rocket Lab, and they want to launch a small satellite called Photon towards Venus as a flyby mission as early as 2023. And that mission might actually launch a or deploy a small probe into the Venusian atmosphere to collect some data. It's not quite clear a small probe like that would be able to carry any sort of uh, instruments that could really, you know, investigate the phosphine question or any other biosignatures in the atmosphere. But it's possible it, you know, could find something that lends more uh, hope to the idea that there's life on Venus. So it's, you know, certainly nothing to just sort of scoff at.
1: And not to be ridiculous here, because I, again, I'm I'm not certain of anything uh, when we have these discussions, but if we just found out about uh, phosphine and we've never really been able to study Venus comprehensively, what are the chances that A, if that is uh, a sign of life, that it's it's not the only sign of life and that there are all sorts of things going on there that we don't understand?
0: Absolutely. I'm, if phosphine is a sign of life on Venus, It's entirely possible it is simply only one form of life. Uh, Like I said before, phosphine is produced on Earth by organisms that are living in environments that are very poor in oxygen. Uh, This would make sense for Venus, obviously, because the atmosphere is just so densely composed of carbon dioxide. But that doesn't mean that, you know, perhaps in other pockets of the environment, perhaps on the surface or perhaps, um, you know, in other altitudes of the atmosphere, there are other forms of life that are producing other kinds of biosignatures that reveal they are um, of a you know different species or um, of a, a very different uh, family of organisms. In the instance that we find an organism on Venus that is producing that phosphine, that does not mean it's the only life form on the planet.
1: If I had to ask uh, for your gut feeling, first of all, is there life on Venus? And second of all, is there varied life there?
0: So my answer to that, uh, <laughs> you should first know, I'm a little bit of a cynic when it comes to uh, thinking about the astrobiological possibilities of the universe. Um, I Right now, we don't know enough about phosphine on Venus to, you know, outright suggest it's a product of life on the planet. And I would say it's probably more likely that phosphine is just being produced by some kind of exotic chemistry on venus that doesn't mean that there's that it's impossible that there's life on venus at all in other kinds of forms uh it, it the, the planet is just has such a vibrant chemistry and such a weird exotic extreme um composition on the surface and on and in the atmosphere that uh, there might be life that exists in other ways we haven't really conceived of here on earth and you know, it's, that's, that's surviving right now uh, in the, the Venusian clouds or on the Venusian surface. My gut feeling is that the life on Venus is probably very, very rare. It's possible, but I wouldn't hold my breath. But I don't think that deters us from thinking about a larger Venus exploration program anyways. Um, we just don't know enough about the planet. And I think there's other reasons that we would want to explore Venus as well. Um, one of the things that you'll hear from a lot of scientists is that Venus started out so similarly to Earth. Both of the planets are s- similar sizes, similar distances from the sun. It's long thought that Venus and the Earth were pretty similar at some point billions and billions of years ago. And there's a strong question as to what happened that caused Venus to turn to such a hellish landscape and allowed Earth to blossom into this, you know, place that is home to countless kinds of uh, species and organisms.
1: So maybe we're about to find out exactly what it was.
0: (laughs) Right. There's a huge mystery as to what happened. And I think that in itself is already a good enough reason for us to want to go investigate Venus and explore the planet more in depth with a very robust exploration program.
1: It would be really something if after uh, kind of scouring as far out as we could get for signs of life that we found something like next door
0: absolutely absolutely I I think while Mars is such an exciting place for so many reasons Venus is <laughs> Venus is also right there and it's waiting for us to to explore it as well um, and if you know if it turns out that the that the phosphine signatures are a sign of life it means that we should at once go as soon as possible to investigate those organisms and find out how they got there, how they were able to survive um, Venus's sort of strange and extreme evolution and what else might be lurking down on the surface.
1: Neil, thank you for uh, indulging us with this today. It's fascinating.
0: Absolutely. Thank you for having me.
1: Neil Patel of MIT Technology Review. That was The Big Story. For more, head to the thebigstorypodcast.ca. You can find all our episodes there, I promise. Next week, we'll be back to covering the pandemic and politics and every other thing that makes us want to leave Earth right now. You can talk to us at The Big Story FPN on Twitter. You can find us, as always, in your podcast player, Apple or Google or Stitcher or Spotify or you choose. I don't care. Just listen and subscribe, rate, and review. Tell your friends. Claire Broussard is the lead producer of The Big Story. Ryan Clark and Stephanie Phillips are our associate producers. Annalisa Nielsen is our digital editor, and I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. Thanks for listening. Have a great weekend. We'll talk Monday.